Hi, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Martin Wagner in the last podcast episode. In this second part on plastic and especially on microplastic pollution, I'll discuss a couple of recent reports and findings and then draw some conclusions and provide some personal perspectives. As already mentioned in the last episode, I find it absolutely important to differentiate between plastic pollution in general, macro and microplastics, with, with microplastics being those particles that are a mere 5 millimeter or smaller in size. They can be either primary intentionally produced particles, for example the particles used for sandblasting, or unintentionally produced particles, for example from the wear of car tires. Still, far too often one finds press releases about microplastics, which are illustrated by the charismatic megafauna, say a baby seal, entangled in a fishing net. That might provide a nice emotional hook, but in fact it's just a cheap shot that actually distracts from the necessary critical analysis of the issue at hand. Plastic pollution is highly visible, while at the same time knowledge on the actual harm beyond entanglements and similar physical impacts is very, very limited. In fact, more and more analyses seem to indicate that especially the harm from microplastics is quite limited. More on that later. That also means that when we're debating priorities and ways forward, it is important to distinguish between necessary or interesting research on the one hand and the need of political and societal action on the other hand. And as usual, we have to reflect on whether we are talking about impacts on the environment and which one or on human health. Plastic is currently perhaps the most important human-made industrial material. In 2015, we've produced around 300 million metric tons worldwide, of which approximately 40% was used in one-way materials. Roughly half of that was plastic packaging. Recently, the World Economic Forum estimated that at least 30% of this material is actually leaking into the environment where it might cause direct harm or where it might break down into microplastics. That goes well together with the data from, recent, uh, from a recent compilation of the top 20 most common plastic products found in uh, six sets of shoreline data, where 75% of the listed items are some sort of food or beverage packing material, wrappers, bottles, bottle caps, straws, etc. By the way, those figures also show which animal is most exposed to plastic in general and especially to virgin plastic material that might be loaded with a lot of different chemical additives. It's humans. And in the context of impacts on human health, the leachates from plastic material, the leachate from plastic packaging and other consumer products lead to a substantial chemical exposure. And uh, the toxicological consequences of that exposure are vastly under-evaluated. But that's a different story. So, back to the environment. The European Technical Group on Marine Litter has reviewed what we know on the impact of marine litter on wildlife already in 2016. Not surprisingly, the group concluded that there is undeniable evidence of harm from entanglement, especially for birds, mammals, fish and turtles. Abandoned, lost and discarded fishing gear is obviously one of the main culprits there. So all these findings lead me to my very first conclusion. Environmental pollution with plastic is first and foremost a waste management issue. 
The Center for International Law, CIEL, has just published an interesting report titled Plastic and Health, the Hidden Costs of a Plastic Planet, which goes beyond the direct impacts of plastic materials. In particular, the report reflects on the human health and environmental impacts of plastic production. This is, of course, closely coupled to the feedstock, so the input material used for plastic production, which is often natural gas and other fossil fuels. So, plastic production is tightly coupled to fossil fuel extraction and to fracking. And without going into the details at this moment in time, I guess everybody is aware that there are severe impacts on the environment as well as on human health from all those activities. So, my second conclusion. Reducing plastic use, independent on whether or not the plastic ends up in the environment or is incinerated, would reduce fossil fuel extraction and fracking, and as a consequence would reduce environmental and human health impacts on a big scale. The exception here are of course plastics that are produced from biological materials. The production of such materials does not depend on fossil fuel extraction, but on the industrial production of other feedstock types, for example starch. But also the industrial agriculture comes with a substantial environmental footprint, so we have to keep that in mind also. Each step in the life of a piece of plastic, especially the production, transportation and waste management, uses fossil fuels and emits greenhouse gases. As plastic production and use continues to ramp up, these impacts are becoming more and more prominent. So, conclusion number three, reducing plastic use helps to mitigate global warming. Also, this conclusion needs to come with a qualifier. The reduction of plastic use itself does not actually always help to mitigate global warming or other environmental impacts. It depends on the functionality that we're looking at and on the alternatives that might be available. Just a simple example. In several food stores around Europe and in the US, one can find plastic bottled water from the Fiji Islands. Replacing those plastic bottles with aluminium cans or even glass bottles would reduce plastic use, obviously, but would certainly not put a stop to a product that is mind-bogglingly stupid in the first place. In fact, the website of Fiji Water proudly announces that on a remote Pacific island, 1,600 miles from the nearest continent, equatorial trade winds purify the clouds that begin Fiji Water's journey through one of the world's last virgin ecosystems. And then it continues, Fiji Water is now the number one imported bottled water in the United States and is enjoyed in over 60 countries across the globe. Honestly, that's a seriously scary and disturbing marketing blurb. So, conclusion number four. Plastic use and plastic pollution should make us seriously consider the stupidity of some of the products that we're buying. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. You wouldn't find Fiji water in our shops if there wouldn't be a market for it. So somebody actually must buy that stuff. Which makes one actually hope that the whole product is just a fraud and not water that is actually shipped over thousands of miles to somebody who just drinks it a few meters away from the next drinking water faucet. Okay, but how about the pollution with microplastics? There have been several reports and reviews published on the toxicology and ecotoxicology of microplastics. And they all end with basically the same two main take-home messages. First, microplastics are literally everywhere. And second, microplastic particles are basically inert. That is, they are simply not toxic. Let me qualify that. 
There are, to the best of my current knowledge, no data that show that microplastic particles are more toxic to ecologically relevant parameters, such as growth or reproduction or interactions along the food chain, than natural particles. And we're talking about effects at relevant concentrations here. I am very much aware that arguing a negative that there are no toxic effects is walking on very thin ice, as any new study might actually sink my argumentation. So please take that statement as a null hypothesis and provide me with the counterexamples. I'll provide the reviews on which I base my current conclusions in the show description, but let me just briefly walk you through the main findings of one of the reviews, which was recently published by Veronique Adams and her colleagues in the journal Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry in 2018. The authors collected the available data and then assessed the risk independently for Europe, North America and Asia. And risk in this context is just the standard comparison of environmental concentrations and the maximum safe concentrations, as determined from the currently available data. Some people have argued that this standard so-called risk quotient approach might be insufficient to characterize the environmental risks of microplastics. But so far I have not heard any convincing arguments why that shouldn't be the case and also not what the alternatives could be. Anyway, the average ratio between the concentrations present in the environment and the maximum safe concentrations was 1.3 times 10 to the power of minus 6 for North America, 3.3 times 10 to the power of minus 6 for Europe, and for Asia it was 4.6 times 10 to the power of minus 3. So in other words, in average, the concentrations in North America and in Europe were by a factor of more than a million lower than the concentrations that actually might cause harm to exposed organisms. In Asia, it was still a factor of more than 1,000. Of course, an average factor of a million or a thousand could still mean that there are a lot of individual sites where organisms are put at risk. But even a detailed analysis of the data from Europe and North America could not identify sites where microplastics actually put exposed organisms at risk. 0.4% of the sites in Asia were at, risks, uh, were at risk from microplastic pollution. So let's take a closer look. The highest concentrations were found in the Saigon River and are described in a recent paper by Lahens and co-workers in the journal Environmental Pollution. Up to 500 microplastic particles were found per liter of river water, a concentration which might indeed cause effects on sensitive ecotoxicological endpoints and species. But let me just read out the description of the Saigon River from that paper. The river catchment basin drains most of the untreated wastewater from dense urban districts with up to 40,000 people per square kilometer and 17 industrial zones, which include textile, apparel, plastic and packaging production industries. Does anybody really think that microplastics are the most critical environmental pollutant in this scenario? In the debate article that I wrote with Martin recently, I commented that microplastic pollution is basically a marker for anthropogenic pollution, not particularly harmful in and of itself, but an indicator of severe environmental mismanagement. And the study by Lahens et al. seemed to support exactly that view. 
Of course, any study is limited by the amount of data available, so future studies might change that overall picture. People have told me that this conclusion on the impacts or non-impacts of the environmental pollution with microplastics is somewhat at odds with my perspective on, for example, pesticides, and that I'm actually following different standards and risk perceptions here. I actually don't agree with that criticism. Surprise, surprise. Sure, there is the commonality that microplastics as well as pesticides are now ubiquitous environmental pollutants. But those materials are fundamentally different from a toxicological or ecotoxicological perspective. Plastic is largely inert. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we use the material in the first place. Pesticides, on the other hand, are chemicals that are specifically developed to be as toxic as possible. Does the non-toxicity of plastic and microplastic mean that we should just accept plastic and microplastic pollution? No, of course not. There is absolutely no law of nature that would require us to accept highly persistent stuff floating around in our waters just because it's not directly toxic. Arguing that way is just a logical fallacy. In order to make it work, we have to turn the argumentation around. If an entity, chemical or particle, is toxic or risky, we simply should not accept its presence in the environment or in our bodies without very, very good reason. If it is not toxic, then we can start to discuss whether and to what extent we might accept it. It's a fundamental problem with our current chemical management system that it's based on the deeply flawed logic that we have to accept the use and production of a chemical unless it's proven toxic or risky. Why? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Think about the Fiji water example. Water is very obviously not toxic and the final product is also not toxic. But that doesn't imply that it's an acceptable product in the end. So I would submit that even if it's not toxic, we should only accept a chemical or a consumer product if it provides beneficial functions for us. And of course, the critical debate would then be what we feel is actually beneficial. Beneficial for whom? In which part of the world? For companies, for consumers, for the environment, for human health? But that is exactly the debate that we need to have more intensely, and that is the debate that we are avoiding far too much. We also need to be aware that the high persistency of plastic, which is a property that we enjoy when we use the material to build cars, airplanes and trains, or when we use it to insulate our houses, implies that all the decisions that we take now have consequences for the foreseeable future. Plastic is the poster child of a forever chemical. That doesn't make the material more toxic per se, but it should make us very, very reluctant to accept its presence, especially the pollution with microplastic is basically irreversible. By the way, if you're on Twitter, just search for the hashtag Extreme Civilization in order to get an idea about the level of weirdness and sometimes plain stupidity that is so deeply embedded in some of the modern consumer products. I still can't decide whether my top item is the green paint for the lawn in front of your house or the single shrink-wrapped strawberry, or the battery-powered spaghetti twirler that I actually found in a shop just in my neighborhood. 
Plastic is an incredibly visual pollution. Small surprise that it's communicated widely and therefore sparks widespread concern and action. Unfortunately, that seems to imply that other, less visual types of pollution receive far too little attention. And to be frank, I'm starting to get increasingly frustrated when I see the amount of resources pooled into an issue that is just a distraction from the real issues at hand. The real issue? The real issue are the literally thousands of commercially used chemicals that we find in a myriad of consumer products for which we basically have no idea how toxic, how hazardous and how risky they are in the long run. In that context, the recent paper by Stafford and Jones titled Ocean Plastic Pollution, A Convenient But Distracting Truth is really worth a read together with the rebuttal from Stephanie Avery Gom and her colleagues. So the underlying question is, how do we act on a multitude of threats to the environment and to human health? Shall we now all become climate scientists and activists? I have to admit that I don't really have a clear answer on that. It's certainly something of a wicked problem for scientists. Uh, if you don't know the term, a wicked problem is something that is difficult or impossible to solve because of incomplete, contradictory and changing requirements that are often difficult to recognize, to simply quote Wikipedia here. In any case, we have to make sure that the issue that we're concerned about actually is a problem. As I've argued in my debate with Martin, if you're asking the wrong question, nobody has to listen to your answers. And your work certainly wouldn't lead to long-term and meaningful changes. From a positive perspective, which is typically Martin's point of view, one can argue and hope that plastic pollution is a starting point to think about the underlying root causes of overconsumption and general overexploitation of resources. I have to admit that I'm not that optimistic. Public attention seems too fickle and also scientists are too often driven too much by external incentives. Basically, I tend to agree with the following quote from the paper by Stafford and Jones. It could be argued that individuals, corporations and governments recognizing and reducing plastic consumption will lead to other lifestyle and policy changes that will progress to addressing climate change and overfishing. That is the so-called gateway view. Or it could be argued that the optimism engendered by reducing plastic consumption could lead to apathy and continued flights, consumerist overconsumption, etc. So the complacency view, which might happen at a crucial window in which time for more radical actions are urgently needed to mitigate climate change. Whilst there may be some capacity for the former, we fear that the latter could be more likely. In that context, it might be worth mentioning an article in the Washington Post from just a couple of days ago, from the 10th of June, which reports that the US EPA's administrator, Andrew Wheeler, will, and I quote, emphasize the importance of curbing marine debris during an upcoming summit with his group of 20 counterparts in Japan, rather than seeking new action on climate change. Sure, the current US administration will grasp at any straw, pun intended, to avoid acting on any environmental issue, but still, it seems to confirm the concern that plastic pollution might in fact be used as a decoy. I also wholeheartedly agree with other statements in the text, in particular that we need to go beyond personal lifestyle changes, although they are obviously important, they are insufficient alone, and that a core prerequisite for broader societal changes is education, formal as well as informal. 
So where does that leave us? When it comes to macroplastic, it seems quite obvious that we need to get much, much better at managing the material and simply curbing plastic use. Similar to other chemicals, as soon as we have a material that is good at what it's doing and is cheap to produce, we're getting completely overboard and end up with an absolutely excessive use that is often more driven by the possibility to produce the material than by actual demands. In the end, I think we are looking at a hierarchy of action. First and foremost, we have to take a hard look at our consumption patterns and do something about them. And that goes far beyond simply banning single-use plastic. Selling Fiji water in an aluminium can in Sweden, a mere 15,000 kilometers away from its source, wouldn't really help anybody and wouldn't improve the situation. Secondly, we need to improve our management of plastic materials, both from a waste management perspective, but also in order to push things towards the, say, slightly utopian aim of a circular plastics economy. Utopian because recycling levels are at a mere 10% or less, and they are certainly not increasing at the moment. And the same characteristics that make plastics such a convenient one-way material that is, it's incredibly cheap to produce and can be used to produce myriads of different items, all those characteristics also make it very unattractive for recycling businesses. Only if action on both these levels, so general production and consumption as well as waste management, are implemented and proven insufficient, then we should take specific action on microplastic pollution. Starting from the other end won't get us anywhere. Or in other words, Curbing excessive consumption, especially of plastic materials, and improving the waste management of plastics will also curb emission of microplastic particles to a good extent. So, let me just emphasize, here I am talking about how and where to act, not about research needs. I would argue that we actually don't really need more natural science research for the first two levels in that hierarchy. We need to get things done. It's interesting in that context to take a look at the upcoming ban on various single-use plastic items in Europe. Both the European Parliament and the European Council voted to ban single-use plastic products, uh, say cotton buds, uh, cutlery, plates, straws, stirrers, sticks for balloons, as well as cups, food and beverage containers made out of polystyrene. The upcoming regulation also comprises measures to reduce the use of plastic food containers and beverage cups, as well as extended producer responsibility schemes covering the cost of cleanup, uh, the, the cost to clean up litter, which is especially important for products uh, such as uh, tobacco filters and fishing gear. And finally, the regulation includes a 90% collection target for plastic bottles and the introduction of uh, design requirements to connect uh, the plastic caps to the plastic bottles, as well as, target, as, well as targets to incorporate uh, 25 to 30% of recycled plastic and bottles. So that's really cool stuff. It's a long time since I've seen European legislation moving forward that fast. So maybe I should actually become more optimistic and indeed... At the moment, the stars are more aligned than I realize, to paraphrase Martin. But getting back to my more pessimistic self for just a second, there are 
very few heavy hitters included in that regulation. There are, for example, no requirements for most packaging materials included, the group of plastic materials with the biggest total tonnage and the biggest waste problem. Also, requirements, for example, for car tires as the main source of unintentionally produced microplastic particles are missing. So, with that regulation, we might make a small dent into the global plastic emissions into the environment, but not too much as the biggest percentage is actually happening outside Europe. But we are currently not really tackling all the other plastic-related environmental issues. Okay, so back to being a bit more optimistic. Let's hope that this regulation is a good first step and that more are going to follow along the idea of a more circular and less resource-intensive economy. Given the enormous dynamic of the field in which new research papers, reports and essays from very different perspectives are published at a mind-blowing speed, uh, well, I really might have overlooked something. Please challenge me if you think that that's the case. I'm not 100% sure yet, but I feel that in the next episode I will revert back to something a bit more fundamental. Most likely I will discuss the precautionary principle in more detail. Given that it's a fundamental principle that I'm a big fan of, but which is often misrepresented in the discussion about chemicals and chemical use. But we'll see, maybe something else comes up. Anyway, thanks for listening and talk to you later.